Book Two, Chapters One through Four of De Monarchia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. De Monarchia by Dante Alighieri. Translated by Ariella Henry Reinhardt. Book Two whether the roman people rightfully appropriated the office of monarchy chapter one introduction why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed saying let us break their bands asunder and cast away their yoke from us we are wont to marvel at any strange effect when we have never beheld the face of its cause and when we have learned to know the cause to look down with a sort of derision on those still lost in astonishment i in truth at one time marvelled that without resistance the roman people had become sovereign throughout the earth for looking merely superficially at the matter i believe they had obtained sovereignty not by right but by force of arms alone however after the eyes of my mind had pierced to the marrow thereof and i had come to understand by most convincing tokens that divine providence had effected this thing my wonder vanished and in its place rises a certain derisive contempt when i hear the heathen raging against the preeminence of the roman race when i see people as i was wont imagining a vain thing when more than all i find to my grief kings and princes concordant only in the error of taking counsel together against their lord and his one roman prince wherefore on behalf of this glorious people and of caesar i exclaim in derision that is also sorrow with him who cried aloud on behalf of the prince of heaven why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed yet lasting derision is not compatible with natural love but as the summer sun rising splendid above the scattered mists of morning sheds abroad its beams so love dispelling its derision would send forth an amending light to break asunder then the bonds of ignorance for those kings and princes to prove the human race free from their yoke i will exhort myself as did that most holy prophet whom i follow with the words that come in order after let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us these two things will be done well enough if i proceed with the second part of my main proposition and reveal the truth of the question now pending for when it is proved that the roman empire existed by right not only will the clouds of ignorance be cleared from the eyes of kings and princes who usurp to themselves public guidance falsely believing that the roman people had done so but all mortals will know that they are free from the yoke of usurpers nor will the truth be revealed in the light of human reason alone but also in the radiance of divine authority and when these two unite together heaven and earth must together give approval resting therefore in that trust of which i have previously spoken and supported by the testimony of reason and authority i enter upon the solution of the second question chapter two what god wills in human society is to be held as right 
now that the truth of the first question has been investigated as adequately as the subject matter permitted the second question urges us to investigate its truth as to whether the roman people appropriated the dignity of empire by right the starting point of this investigation is that verity to which the arguments of the present inquiry may be referred as to their own first principle it must be understood therefore that as art exists in a threefold degree in the mind of the artist in the instrument and in the matter informed by the art so may nature be looked upon as threefold for nature exists in the mind of the primal motor who is god and then in heaven as in the instrument through whose mediation the likeness of eternal goodness is unfolded on liquid matter when the artist is perfect and his instrument without fault any flaw that may appear in the form of the art can be imputed to the matter only thus since god is ultimate perfection and since heaven his instrument suffers no defect in its required perfectness as a philosophic study of heaven makes clear it is evident that whatever flaw mars lesser things is a flaw in the subjective material and outside the intention of god working through nature and of heaven and that whatever good is in lesser things cannot come from the material itself which exists only potentially but must come first from the artist god and secondly from the instrument of divine art heaven which men generally call nature from these things it is plain that inasmuch as right is good it dwells primarily in the mind of god and as according to the words what was made was in him life everything in the mind of god is god and as god especially wills what is characteristic of himself it follows that god wills right according as it is in him and since with god the will and the thing willed are the same it follows further that the divine will is right itself and the further consequence of this is that right is nothing other than likeness to the divine will hence whatever is not consonant with divine will is not right and whatever is consonant with the divine will is right so to ask whether something is done with right although the words differ is the same as to ask whether it is done according to the will of god let this therefore base our argument that whatever god wills in human society must be accepted as right true and pure moreover that should be remembered which the philosopher teaches in the first book to nicomachus like certainty is not to be sought in every matter but according as the nature of the subject admits it wherefore our arguments will advance adequately under the principle established if we investigate the right of this great people through visible signs and the authority of the wise the will of god is in itself an invisible attribute but by means of things which are made the invisible attributes of god become perceptible to the intellect for though a seal be hidden the wax impressed therewith bears manifest evidence of the unseen signet nor is it remarkable that the divine will must be sought in signs for the human will except to him who wills is discerned no way else than in signs chapter three the romans as the noblest people deserve precedence before all others i say with regard to this question that the roman people by right and not by usurpation took to itself over all mortals the office of monarchy which men call the empire 
This may first be proved thus. It was meet that the noblest people should have precedence over all others. The Roman people was the noblest. Therefore it was meet that it should have precedence over all others. The major premise is demonstrable. For, since honor is the reward of virtue, and all precedence is honor, all precedence is a reward of virtue. It is agreed that men are ennobled as virtues of their own, or their ancestors make them worthy. Nobility is virtue and ancient wealth, according to the philosopher in the physics. But according to juvenile, virtue is the one and only nobility of soul. These two definitions grant two kinds of nobility, one's own and that of one's ancestors. By reason of the cause inherent in nobility, the reward of precedence is befitting the noble. And as rewards should be commensurate with merits, in consonance with that saying of the gospel, with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. The foremost rank should be to the noblest. As for the minor premise, the testimony of the ancients is convincing, since Virgil, our divine poet, throughout his Aeneid, testifies in everlasting remembrance that the father of the Roman people was Aeneas, the famous king, and Titus Livius, illustrious writer of Roman deeds, confirms this testimony in the first part of his volume, which begins with the capture of Troy. So great was the nobleness of this man, our ancestor most invincible and most pious, nobleness not only of his own considerable virtue, but that of his progenitors and consorts, which was transferred to him by hereditary right, that I cannot unfold it in detail. I can but trace the main outlines of the truth. As to his personal nobility, hearken to our poet in the first book of the Aeneid, introducing Ilionius with the plea, Aeneas was our king, than whom none other was more just and pious, none other greater in war and arms. Hearken to him again in the sixth, when, speaking of the dead Mecenas, Hector's attendant in war, who entered the service of Aeneas after Hector's death, he says, Mecenas had followed no lesser fortunes. This compares Aeneas with Hector, whom Homer honors above all men, as the philosopher affirms in that part of the writings to Nicomachus on types of conduct to be avoided. As to his hereditary nobility, it accrues to him from the three continents of the earth through his ancestors and his consorts. Asia ennobled him through his most immediate ancestors. Asaricus and those who ruled over Phrygia, a region in Asia, as our poet records in these lines of the third book. After it seemed good to the gods to overturn the might of Asia and the race of Priam, unmeriting their fate, Europe ennobled him through Dardanus, most ancient of his ancestors, and Africa through Electra, his most ancient ancestress, daughter of King Atlas of great renown. Concerning both of these facts, our poet renders testimony in the eighth book, where Aeneas speaks thus to Evander. Dardanus, the first founder of the city and father of Ilium, descended as the Greeks deem from Atlantean Electra, came among the Teucrians. Electra was sprung from Atlas the Mighty, who sustains the heavenly orbs upon his shoulders. The bard sings in the third book of Dardanus taking his origins from Europe, saying, There is a place the Greeks have named Hesperia, an ancient country powerful in arms and fertile in soil, 
where dwell the Enoctrians. Rumor has it that later generations called the country Italy, from the name of their leader. Here is our fatherland, hence came Dardanus. That Atlas came from Africa, the mountain is witness, which there bears his name. This mountain Orosius locates in Africa in his description of the world, where he says, Now its uttermost bound is Mount Atlas and the islands which they call the fortunate. Its refers to Africa, of which he was speaking. I find also that nobility accrue to Aeneas through marriage. His first wife Crusa, daughter of Priam, was from Asia, as may be gathered from the facts quoted above and that she was his wife, our poet implies in the third book, when Andromache thus questions Aeneas, concerning his son Ascanius. What of the boy Ascanius, he whom Crucia bore to thee, while Troy was yet smoking? Lives he still? Breathes he the vital air? His second wife was Dido, queen and mother of the Carthaginians in Africa, of whom, as Aeneas's wife, the poet sings in the fourth book nor longer dido dreams of secret love she calls it marriage hiding her sin beneath a name his third wife was lavinia mother alike of albanians and romans daughter and also heir of king latinus if the testimony of our poet be true in the last book where he introduces turnus conquered supplicating aeneas with this prayer thou hast triumphed and the ausonians have beheld me vanquished lifting up my hands Lavinia shall be thy wife. This last consort was of Italy, most excellent region of Europe. With these facts pointed out in evidence of our minor premise, who is not sufficiently convinced that the father of the Roman race, and therefore the race itself, was the noblest under heaven? Or from whom will still be hidden divine predestination, in the twofold meeting in one man of blood, from every part of the world? Chapter 4. Because the Roman Empire was aided by miracles, it was willed of God. Furthermore, whatever is brought to its perfection by the help of miracles, is willed of God, and therefore comes to pass by right. The truth of this is patent from what Thomas says, in his third book against the heathen. A miracle is that which is done through the divine agency, beyond the commonly instituted order of things. Here he proves that the working of miracles is competent to God alone, and he is corroborated by the word of Moses, that when the magicians of Pharaoh artfully used natural principles to bring forth lice and failed, they cried, This is the finger of God. If a miracle, then, is the immediate operation of the first agent, without the cooperation of secondary agents, which Thomas himself proves clearly enough in the book just cited, then when the portents are sent in favor of anything, it is wicked to deny that the thing comes to pass, foreseen of God and well-pleasing to him. Hence piety accepts the contradictory, that the Roman Empire gained its perfection with the approval of miracles, that it was therefore willed of God, and consequently that it was and is by right. And it is established through the testimony of illustrious authors, that God revealed his will in miracles in order that the Roman Empire might be brought to completion. For Livy states in the first part of his work that when Numa Pompilius, second king of the Romans, was sacrificing according to the religious rites of the Gentiles, 
a shield fell from heaven into the chosen city of god lucan recalls this miracle in the ninth book of the pharsalia in describing the incredible violence which libya suffers from the south wind where he says it was thus surely that to numa as he sacrificed dropped the shield which the chosen youth of the patricians bears upon his neck in solemn march south wind or north wind had robbed the peoples wearing their shields and when the gauls having taken the rest of the city trusted in the darkness of night to move stealthily to the capital which alone stood between them and utter annihilation of the roman name livy and many other distinguished chroniclers agree that the guards were awakened to defend the capital from the approach of the gauls by the warning cry of a goose unseen there previously this was remembered by virgil when he described the shield of aeneas in the eighth book on the summit of the tarpeian citadel before the temple manlius stood guard and held the heights of the capital while the newly built palace of romulus was rough with thatch and here a silver goose flying through golden portals sang the presence of the gauls on the very threshold also livy tells among the jests of the punic wars that when the nobility of rome overwhelmed by hannibal had sunk to such depths that nothing remained for the final destruction of the roman power but the sacking of the city by the carthaginians a sudden and intolerable storm of hail made it impossible for the victors to follow up their triumph was not the flight of clelia a miracle a woman and a captive during the siege of porsena by the wonderful aid of god she rent her fetters asunder and swam the tiber as almost all historians of rome's affairs remember to that city's glory truly it behooved him so to do who through eternity foresees all things and the beauty of order invisible he wrought wonders in behalf of things seen in order that when he should be made visible he might do likewise in behalf of things unseen End of Book 2, Chapters 1 through 4